Welcome back to The Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Siddharth Nankatraman. And I'm Leo Shen. In this episode, we're going to discuss the coronavirus. Now, we all know about the United States and their response to the coronavirus, but I feel like a lot of us don't know enough about what other countries have done to mitigate the effects of COVID-19. So today, we're going to talk about a few other countries but first, we're going to talk a little bit about what the United States has done, just to catch everyone up. Leo, can you talk a little bit about what the U.S. has done so far? Sure, Sid. So I'm just going to talk about the U.S. a little bit. And I know everyone doesn't need that much of a refresher since it's been at the forefront of all of our minds for the past year. And it's crazy to think that it's been over a year already. But it actually began at the end of last January, at the beginning um, of the year. And at that time, the U.S. started seeing their first community-acquired transmission in Washington. And since then, the CDC and the government have been trying to put together strategies to implement testing, as well as treatments and vaccinations to help get this pandemic under control. A lot has happened, and we'll cover some of these, but we're not going to get into too much detail. Specifically, in terms of testing, the CDC tried to implement their own domestic testing kit. That was around mid-February, and they saw some trouble with that test. That test didn't work at first. They, they saw contaminants in the test, and they took a while before they started seeing results and making that test widely available. By the end of February, they only did about 500 to 4,000 tests, and we'll contrast this with some numbers from other countries for you to really see how low that really is. But since then, other challenges that the U.S. has faced has been the continual politicization of the messaging, as well as the anti-masking group, as well as conspiracy theories. We're not going to get into too much of that, but obviously those things have been making the public health messaging difficult, and it has been making all of it inconsistent for everyone to hear. It's difficult for all of us, as our listeners probably know, to be told things are going to open back up again, things are going to go back to normal, but then again, it goes back into lockdown. And that's kind of what we've been seeing with these peaks and troughs in terms of deaths and cases. Last March and April saw some of our first peaks in New York, as I'm sure everyone remembers. And then towards the end of the summer and late fall, we also saw a lot more deaths. But to give everybody a little bit of hope, we are seeing a decrease in cases and deaths recently. And the vaccination rates have also been fairly encouraging. Um, The U.S. is actually fourth in the world in terms of the vaccination rate, if you can believe it. We're seeing around 18%, and we'll contrast that with some other countries as well. And so that's some great news, and we hope that it can only get better from there. Um, But we do want to talk about these issues just to make sure that we learn from these mistakes or triumphs to apply to future pandemics. Yeah, that's perfect, Leo. Thank you for sharing all that. And I think that uh, you're absolutely right. The pandemic is definitely brought to light a lot of disparities, especially in healthcare distribution and and how we see and classify essential workers and stuff like that. So I agree. It's very it's a very important uh, lesson for us to learn and take for future pandemics and future healthcare crises. But let's talk a little bit about some other countries that have had maybe a, a more successful uh, approach to the pandemic. One country that we should talk about is Taiwan, all the way on the other side of the world. And again, Leo has some experience with this, so he's going to talk a little bit about that. Sure, Sid. Um, So that's all the way across the globe. And as many of our listeners know, Taiwan is a little island country off the side of China. And a lot of the countries over there have seen a lot of success with controlling the pandemic. And 
I think what that has to what that has a lot to do with is actually their past experience with SARS. As you might remember, back in 2003, around 2004, also there there was an outbreak of the first SARS virus, and it's called the first because what we're experiencing now is actually called SARS-CoV-2. It's the second SARS virus, and so these countries have had some practice with actually dealing uh, with pandemics. And I think there, what's made a big difference has been the culture in terms of. Listening to the government and trusting that wearing masks and the public health messaging is for their own good, and doing that and eating some of that pain, I guess, just for a little bit, will lead to going back to normal more quickly. And so, what I think has given Taiwan a lot of strength and advantages in this pandemic has actually been their leadership. Specifically, the former vice president Chen Chenzhen received his Doctor of Science in Human Genetics and Epidemiology, and he was actually Hopkins trained. So there's a nice little connection there for us.、Um, and he served as the Minister of Health back in the early 2000s as well. And so he was definitely very well positioned to respond to a pandemic like this. And what he advised the rest of the government to do was actually to not lock everything down, but rather to close the borders and to implement. Aggressive contact tracing, as well as to use their technology, such as mobile SIM tracking on the phones, to ensure that their citizens and anyone who was supposed to be quarantining were abiding by those rules. And so, I think that's in stark contrast to what the U.S. has done. The consistency and messaging there has allowed their citizens to build a sense of trust in their government, and they've all had a collective sense of what it was like at, during the first pandemic, which has given them. That sort of trust as well,、um, and what they also continue to do was to hold daily public briefings, which I think has been really helpful because making sure that all the citizens are hearing the same message over and over again, knowing that they're working towards a collective goal, has given the whole country a sense of galvanization and a sense of collective sense of teamwork. And so they kept their businesses open, and they also stockpiled a lot of、uh, PPE, which is. Personal protective equipment like masks and all that kind of stuff after the first pandemic, and so they had a lot of that to go around to give to their citizens who complied with wearing、uh, the masks as well. And so, obviously, Taiwan is also a small country and an island, and so that experience is a fairly unique experience that might be hard to replicate in a country like the U.S. But still, taking little things like stockpiling PPE or、um, consistent public health messaging are things that can be applied to other bigger countries with success as well. And I think what we might want to compare Taiwan to next is another island country that might not have seen quite as robust of a response,、um, but also has some things that we can learn from, and that's the UK. So with the UK, what we're actually going to be talking about first is that. They faced some of the similar challenges that the U.S. did. They saw widespread anti-lockdown protests, as well as a population of anti-maskers and conspiracy theorists who were convinced that the coronavirus was a hoax. And so, obviously, having a subpopulation like that will make the response to coronavirus harder than it was in Taiwan, where everyone was motivated to work together、um, to reach an end. And so, the the U.K. also saw. Widespread politicization of their public health messaging, as well as a lack of consistency. And as we've touched on a couple of times now already, that consistency seems to have benefited Taiwan a lot in this pandemic, as it has other East Asian countries as well. And some of the other issues that have been brought up about the UK's response,、um, similar to the USA, is that their health services, specifically in the public health realm, are underfunded. They don't have great Task forces to respond to these sorts of emergencies very quickly, and they have not been funding a lot of the research that is needed to 
to help best address these problems expeditiously. And so having those health services either taken down recently by past presidents, such as President Trump here in the US or Prime Minister Boris Johnson over in the UK has slowed down the response to the pandemic a little bit. And I think that's a real shame because both of these countries have great infrastructures in terms of resources for, for research, for uh, funding these sorts of important public health measures. They've simply chosen to ne neglect those um, for other sectors in their government. And that has also unfortunately harmed the minority groups the most. And it's not been very equitable in terms of who has been hit hardest during this pandemic. Just as it's been in the US, our minority groups here have seen the lion's share of severe COVID cases. And they've also been the essential workers who've been required to go in uh, to work all the time, despite all the other lockdowns or those who are more fortunate being able to work from home. And so these are considerations that have unfortunately made the UK's response hit a little too close to home for us Americans as well. There's also been a lack of economic support packages. In the US, we're trying to pass bills um, to get much needed cash to these families to make sure that they can cope with the pandemic so that they don't face permanent or long-term damage and, and, and suffering. And so the UK similarly has not had great success in pushing those packages through. Um, and that has definitely been a, um, a shame and something that's detracted from the population's trust of the government as well. But I don't want to make everything negative because the UK has done great things as well in terms of their response to the pandemic that maybe the US can even learn from. Specifically, they have a centralized national health system that's allowed a lot of people when they have been sick with COVID to go to see physicians or go to clinics without having fear of facing a, an astronomical hospital bill, for example. Also, the UK has had a vaccine task force led by pharmaceutical investor Kate Bingham, where they've bet big on vaccines, where they've actually invested a lot of money upfront in making sure that they have enough doses uh, when before they were even approved, actually. And this is oddly where the UK has benefited from not being a part of the EU. They were able to get their vaccine doses more quickly once they were approved, and that's paying dividends now. As we can see, the UK is actually third in vaccination rates, just behind Israel and um, the UAE. And so the UK has actually managed to vaccinate everyone in their highest priority groups, whether that be the above 70-year-old group as well, uh, or the um, frontline health workers and social care workers who desperately needed that sort of consolation and, and safety net. And so the way that the UK has done this to such an effective degree has been they've mobilized a lot of their public venues, such as soccer stadiums, cathedrals, um, mosques, you name it, they've made them vaccination sites and made sure that everyone, no matter socioeconomic background, has been able to get to those sites, make sure that they are able to get those vaccines into the arms and get those doses going in order to curb this, this pandemic. And that's definitely been a uh, great uh, site to see from, from us here as well. And another thing that the UK has done great is they've had a very sophisticated sequencing program called the COVID-19 Genomics UK Consortium, where they've been able to monitor and track all of these virus strains going on um, around the country and sequence a lot of them to make sure that they know whether the virus is mutating or not. 
And so the UK was actually one of the first countries to identify one of the variants that some of you may have heard of called the B.1.17 variant. We don't need to get into the details of what makes that different, but that rose that raised some concern in experts' eyes thinking that the variant could curb the effectiveness of vac vaccines and such. But the UK did a great job in identifying it so early and doing the testing and trials needed to reassure their citizens as well as the rest of the world that these variants can still be controlled with some of the vaccines that we've been using. And so that's been in stark contrast to the US where our sequencing capacity, as I alluded to earlier, is even now still lacking and unable to accurately monitor the spread of variants because we don't have that sort of sophisticated consortium going on. And so that's something that our country can learn from as well. And we definitely know that the US has the capability and the resources needed to have a unit like that. But I think in speaking about the variants, we also want to address some of the other countries that have seen variants as well. Specifically, Brazil and South Africa have seen variants. And I'm actually going to ask you, Sid, to, to tell us a little bit more about South Africa and how they've been uh, responding to this pandemic in the last year or so. Yeah, Leo, uh, thank you for sharing all that about uh, the UK. I think South Africa shares a very similar story, uh, but it's an entirely different environment. So let's definitely dive in. So that's, though South Africa may not have been on your radar early in this pandemic, I'm sure it is by now. I'm sure you've seen all the news about a new strain of SARS-CoV-2 that recently was identified. Uh, by now, it's spread to about 40 countries. And what makes it special from the COVID that you know and love now is that it has an unusually large number of mutations, especially in that spike protein that helps it attach to your cells. So that makes it 50% more contagious. And a lot of the most widely used vaccines, like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, have noted reduced effectiveness, but they have noted that these vaccines are still protective and should prevent moderate to severe illness. However, more research is still being done and is pending. One vaccine that has noted significant reduction in effectiveness is the AstraZeneca vaccine. They completely halted the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine in South Africa once they realized it does not provide adequate protection. That being said, I think it's worth taking a step back and looking at their timeline to see how South Africa has dealt with this pandemic and how they're addressing the new strains that have arose. So their national response was actually quite impressive and started just 10 days after their first patient was diagnosed. They started with strict lockdowns of schools and gatherings, halted international travel, and created a task force of virologists, public health experts, medical practitioners, mathematical modelers, informing all of their different policy decisions. And then after that, they deployed community health workers to high-risk and rural areas to go house to house doing case finding and contact tracing and screened over 11 million people. That's just a very unfathomable process. I don't think something like that exists here in the US, but to imagine that being put together, it must have taken a significant amount of coordination on a lot of different people's parts. However, they're not without their challenges. One challenge that they had was scaling up their programs to ensure that they covered all of South, South Africa. At first, it was just the private sector doing most of the testing. Now the government has secured enough supplies to be able to do the testing on their own. Another problem is that South Africa is a hotspot for HIV and TB, which is tuberculosis. Both increase the chance of getting COVID and both will also increase your chance of dying once you do get COVID. So not only was the healthcare system already quite burdened, but a lot of those people who needed that continuous care were not getting it because they were not allowed to go in the hospital when there was COVID. So there was a huge problem to access of care for other diseases. As a result, their case burden did increase, and the amount of total cases they've had so far has been 1.5 billion, about 49,000 deaths. 
they've survived about two waves so far, but it looks like they're about to enter the third wave. So we'll see how that goes. It's an ongoing and updating story. Now, South Africa is very interesting, but I'm gonna shift gears entirely and talk about in another country, Hungary. Now, Hungary has a very interesting story of its own. So as of the beginning of 2021, Hungary had the third highest number of deaths as a share of the population in the EU, with a conservative estimate of over 10,000 deaths. Now, the impact of COVID on Hungary's governance is something we should all pay attention to, not only because it affected tens of thousands of people in the state, but also because it affected how the government responded to the pandemic and will have long-lasting impacts on the world stage for how countries or unsavory characters may use the political capital that future healthcare crises may create. Since coming to power in 2010, Prime Minister Viktor Orban's government has sought to consolidate Hungary into a new political system that he calls an illiberal democracy. In 2019, they pretty much controlled most media outlets and centralized most government institutions under his Fidesz party. This is a very textbook totalitarian move, but we should look at how this impacted their timeline for the COVID response. Their initial healthcare and economic response to the pandemic was quite slow and focused more on publicizing their efforts. This was mostly due to their worries about negative press during an election season. It's also worth noting that since 2010, Orban has reduced spending on healthcare infrastructure year after year, spending only 4.4% of their GDP on healthcare in 2019. In comparison, Germany spends about 10% and England spends about 8% of their GDP. So this definitely had long lasting impacts on what their current healthcare infrastructure was like and how they were able to mobilize for this pandemic. He also appointed over 100 hospital commanders who don't really have any experience in healthcare, but were meant to make decisions that were supposed to impact their constituents. As a result, over 25% of the initial cases of COVID and 50% of the deaths came from hospital infections, but these hospitals lacked the proper leadership to actually address it. In March, the entire world saw what happened with Italy where hospitals were overwhelmed with COVID patients. So Orban ordered all hospitals in uh, Hungary to clear out 66% of all patients in the hospital and preemptively make space for what he called a worst case scenario. So there were reports of many patients who had cancer or other terminal diseases being discharged from the hospital and forced to just die at home with their family. And though a lot of people did question this and there was high scrutiny behind this decision, there was no epidemiological backing for this decision either. So this just happened to be a unilateral decision made by the government. Though they were off to quite a rocky start, most people do consider Hungary's response to the initial wave to have been successful. They locked down, declared a state of emergency, stopped indoor gatherings, and leveraged their control over all these various institutions to enforce these rules and coordinate testing. However, many of these policies had an ulterior motive that helped Prime Minister Orban secure power and disenfranchise municipalities. He implemented a five-year jail sentence for promoting misinformation about the virus, which promoted science, but allowed him to control the media and jail his various political opponents for criticizing his response to the pandemic. He also closed borders and shut down non-essential businesses early, which sounds great, but he made exceptions for rich and influential people and also designated certain businesses and districts, special economic zones that were not privy to these laws. And third, he passed laws that allowed him to be a unilateral decision maker concerning COVID-19 resources, funding, and guidelines. This is a huge red flag because he made it vague enough for him to exploit it and deplatform and defund opposing political groups. He used the COVID pandemic as a power grab, so to speak. This all culminated in Orban announcing that he would suspend the elections, dismantling democracy in favor of a dictatorship. As of this podcast, the laws still stand. And moreover, the people of Hungary are still battling COVID-19 since the state decided not to lock down for the second and third waves due to impacts on the economy.
This situation is actively developing and it should be the one that we continue to watch for, not only because of the politics, but also as an example of how important it is to maintain investment in public health and medical infrastructure as preventative measures against future pandemics. So in summary, we've covered four different, very, very interesting countries. And I think that they really provide a backdrop for us to talk about what we can do for future pandemics and future medical crises. Yeah, absolutely, Sid. It's been really interesting to, to hear not only about Hungary's complex political situation, but also about how South Africa has been dealing with its variants and contrasting that with the UK. And I think what we've learned from looking at these other countries is that consistent public health messaging seems to be key. And that is what develops that trust in the community, in the leadership, and what galvanizes uh, the whole population to work towards putting the pandemic behind them. I think I'm sure a lot of us wish we were in Taiwan right now where their citizens are allowed to go to the movies, are allowed to just live life as normal. But I think that that is a little bit of an idealistic situation given Taiwan's unique positioning and their stature as an island country. Nonetheless, I think looking at Taiwan's messaging, looking at their trust in science, and also looking over to the UK and South Africa, looking at how they've responded to these emerging variants and all that kind of stuff has taught us a lot about the pandemic and will give us food for thought for future pandemics to come. And hopefully that food for thought is not something that we dwell too much on and that we don't actually take action on. And so what we would hope is that the U.S. is able to learn from these other countries and implement things in order to be better positioned the next time around, knock on wood, hopefully there isn't no next time, but just to make sure that we are able to respond to these sorts of emergencies without having to put so many vulnerable populations at risk, as well as putting some more fortunate populations as well through their own social hardships and such. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Health Beat. If you made it this far, you must be really interested in public health. If you're interested in learning more, check out the many resources we'll be posting on our social media and in the description for this episode. Remember to follow us on social media and give your support on Spotify and Apple. This has been Leo and Sid, plus our amazing producer for this episode, Sam. With the Health Beat, see you all in the next episode. <laughs>